0: So we're going to be going in to Zechariah chapter 12 to 14, finishing up the cleaning up of the kingdom. And just to warn you in advance, we're going to be going all over the scripture because Zechariah is a book that's kind of the central piece of the Old and New Testament. It actually directs both directions so beautifully. And so I want to start, though, with this question, because I think a lot of us, we never like it when we are people that are misunderstood. I don't know about you, but I don't, know, I don't like it when somebody thinks one thing about me and I'm like, that's not really who I am. And so my question for you is, what if Jesus is the most misunderstood person in your life? Especially when it comes to him being king. What if he's the most misunderstood person? Because this series, all throughout the year, has raised a lot of very honest questions for us. Is God worth following? If he is, why don't I follow him closer? What would happen if I didn't follow him? Or if I did follow him, do I trust where he leads me? Am I keeping my distance from him being king for a reason? And a lot of us, we don't like it when things go outside of our control. We don't like feeling powerless or losing control. And those often plague our minds. And so we put lots of time and money and motivation to keep control. And often you'll see us respond or lash out when things threaten our control or fall outside of our little control of kingdom. And so this reality of kingship and of Jesus being king makes us have to deal with the issue of who directs and commands my life. Is it me or is it God? And so I love this because Zechariah really addresses this. But I think what makes it hard is that the idea of king and kingship that we've been talking about throughout this year, it's actually very hard for us to grasp. Even though it comes up 2,300 times in the Bible, we have a struggle with looking at someone as a king We envision human elements of rulership and leadership and we feel like no person has the right, whether by birth or by vote or by ability, to direct and oversee all people. It's why within our own government we have checks and balances to protect against human failure within this. Or we look at kings and queens as just a figurehead where they're just kind of there to be the sign of king, but I am actually the one that manages my life. I'm the one that's in control, and God is only there to help me when it's hard or to make me feel better about myself. That's what a king is. He's just a figurehead. And so when we hear terms like authority and power and submission and obedience, it feels kind of out of beat with us because we're not used to having someone as king. But when we look at Zechariah, as he's going through his book, even when it looked like evil had done its worst, he can exclaim, the Lord remains king and he will be seen as king by all. And that's the message that we're going to end up walking into. And so the last three weeks, Pastor Brian and Pastor Parnell have been walking us through Zechariah 1 to 11. And we've talked about the need for tension that exists in every story, that every story hits these all our lost moments where then you have the climax where restoration comes together. And we learn that in books like Zechariah, you can learn how to read a prophetic book by understanding that there are pieces that were for then, there are pieces that are for now that apply to us, and there's pieces that have to do with the future. And you have to look at that in how you read every line because this is an apocalyptic book about the end, but it's also a salvation prophecy talking about transformation and the hope of change and the hope of kingdom. And so although we start with Israel's history, we get all this vision in deep emotion and in poetic language that helps us see that we can realize the fullness of the kingdom right now and we can look forward to it in the future. And so Pastor Brian kind of finished us off off by talking about how the restoration of the temple that Zechariah kept speaking of is a restoration of us. It's allowing the Lord to sit and rule on His throne in us as king. And, and Bishop, he walked us through chapters seven to 11 and helped us to look at the questions that Israel was facing of, how do we respond to this idea of kingdom? And how long do we have to wait? Is it coming soon? Are we gonna be the type of people that are ready to receive and participate in the kingdom of the Messiah? And Parnell walked us through the prophecies of the shepherd that was to come to bring restoration, that there was one Davidic ruler that would come to bring restoration for all. And he talks about five different responses to the restoration process. But what you end up seeing in the end of all that is that the people reject that shepherd, the restorer. And so we're left coming into Zechariah 12 to 14, and we're having to deal with the challenges that has raised. And you have to remember that Zechariah was a prophet in the post-exilic period after Israel had been taken into exile in Babylon, they return, and Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi are three prophets, contemporaries, preaching messages, and their, their challenges are all about the temple and about Jerusalem. And they're talking about how the new Jerusalem and the new temple were the condition for the messianic kingdom to come. It's what everything depended on because they believed the Lord would come from his temple. But what they didn't realize and they couldn't expect to appreciate is that when the messianic king came, Jesus, he says in Mark 14 and in John 2 that his body is the temple and that it would be destroyed and three days later be raised again. And that the effect of that was that his body as temple would become the cornerstone of a holy temple made up of many living stones, believers who become a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And so everybody, Israel and the Gentiles, are included in grace with the kingdom. And so we're gonna see as we walk into uh, Zechariah 12, we're gonna see this picture of what God was going to do with the Messiah, which we already know has happened. And he's gonna talk about the Messiah coming again and bringing in the kingdom in its fullness. And so one of the things I want you to realize, because like I said, we're gonna be going all over scripture, is that when you read the book of Zechariah, it's connected with everything that came before it. He is going off of things spoken by Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Jeremiah and Genesis and Deuteronomy, but this is also a book that affects how you read the gospels, the story of Jesus, and it affects the, how you read the book of Revelation because Zechariah is actually the greatest Old Testament influence on the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And how many of us know the book of Zechariah well? <laughs> I've studied it and I don't know. And, and so we have to understand how central this book is. So if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 12. Um, we're gonna be going verses 1 to 6. If you're using the Bibles in the seat around you, it's uh, page 798. And if you're using a device, just type in Zechariah and then scroll. Until you get there. So I'm going to read quickly. I read very fast. And then we're going to go back and walk through this. So try to keep up. And if you don't, you can go back and watch the video. All right, Zechariah 12. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the people with blindness. Then the clans of Judah Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And and so the the text starts by taking you into a fresh oracle, a fresh vision for this book. But now it's saying this is a vision from the creator God. So it talks about God creating and it talks about his recreating power because it's going to be speaking of the future and completion and perfection. It's trying to show you that what's about to happen in the new kingdom is equivalent to creation at the very beginning. And so it's ushering back. And so it's going to dive in and give you this beautiful mix where you're going to see that God's going to confront all these things with power. You're going to see justice and judgment, but he's also going to pour out mercy and salvation. And you're going to see as we keep reading that the kingdom will not come without great cost. And so those first six verses, they start by saying, on that day. And did you notice how it said, on that day, on that day, on that day, on that day? It's going to say it seven times in chapter 12, three more times in chapter 13, and seven more times in chapter 14. It's kind of important. (laughs) It's trying to draw your attention because this is a prophetic snapshot that's pointing ahead to the final day when God establishes his kingdom and glory. And so it wants you to be driven into that. It wants you to be motivated by trust that God has a purpose with what's going to go forward. And then in those six verses, it gives you those poetic allusions of kind of what's going to happen with this final siege and the response to it. So Jerusalem is like a cup of staggering. They're like a heavy stone. Anyone who lifts it will hurt themselves. And then you see this judgment where all the nations are gathering around Jerusalem again to siege it, to attack it. But God intervenes. He strikes the horse with madness the, and the rider with panic, panic. And you see that Judah is like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch, and they're gonna devour all, everything around them. And it's kind of trying to tell you in the beginning that God's gonna confront evil among all the nations, but he's also gonna confront the evil and the wickedness in Jerusalem because God's always gonna go and cleanse everyone from the idolatry and sin in their lives. And that's how it starts. But then, because of that justice, he's gonna come in and show protection. And so in verse four, you can see him saying, for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. My eyes are wide open. Whereas he'll strike the horse and rider with blindness, God says, my eyes are wide open on you. We need to hear that sometimes, right? With whatever we're going through, that God's eyes are wide open and he's watching, ready to spare, ready to save, ready to intervene. And in the book of Zechariah, That message of God's eyes and his eyes being open are everywhere. In chapter 3, there's seven eyes on a stone. In chapter 4, there's seven eyes on a lampstand. There's eyes everywhere. And they're symbolic to, again, show you that God sees. And because God sees, God can act. And in verse 5, the people realize that. And it says that the leaders of the clan will say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of the angel armies. Their God. And it tells you in verse six that they will be inhabited in their place. And so you're seeing in these first six verses that God's confronting the rebellion of all people, he's cleansing them, but he's pouring out his power and grace so that they can respond and they can be properly established and settled. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of us, whether you're feeling like you're at your top or you're retired or whatever, but I don't think anybody ever feels like they're in that perfect 100% where everything is perfectly established and perfectly settled. And that's something that only can occur in the promise and the future of the kingdom. But let's keep going. Let's look at verse seven and nine. It says, and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. That's cool. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And so God says, even within all this justice, even within everything that looks like judgment, I'm going to come in and you're going to see salvation and you're going to see protection. And it's going to start with Judah, the house of Judah. And I want you to kind of do something the rest of the time this morning that every time you hear that term house of Judah, you need to translate it in your mind as kingdom. Because when it's talking about the house of Judah, it's talking about the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom that's going to come through the Messiah from the line of David. And so you're going to see it come up a lot and it's trying to focus our eyes there. Because it's going to be from the house of Judah that all people are going to be caught up in the splendor of salvation and everybody will have equal standing before God. And it gives you that cool piece of the feeblest will be like David. Now that doesn't mean we're going to like, look like David or have the military prowess of David. It means we're going to have the trust and dependence on God that David had. Because when David went out to fight Goliath, he didn't go out there with this massive arsenal. He went out there believing in the power of God. And that's what made him stand out. And it's saying even the weakest person is going to have that type of faith, that type of trust. Don't you wish you have that? But then it says something very dynamic. It says the house of David, the kingdom is going to be like God. That's significant because it's trying to say the Davidic king, the Davidic kingdom is going to be like God and it's going to be like the angel of God going before them. It's going to lead and provide and protect in the same way God has led, protected before. But now it's going to be happening with this Davidic king. But that's going to draw our eyes to verse 10 because that's actually where it all crushes down. So this is where your fill in the blank is going to come up. If you're somebody that does the fill in the blank, whether on a device or on your paper, or you just kind of listen to it and you go, mm, I'm not going to remember that. This is what the fill in the blank is. Restoration will come through the death of the king. We, we talked about there being a cost. Restoration will come through the death of the king. Because God has always had a plan for restoration. Ever since sin came into the world, God had a plan for restoration, but he knew that we could not do it. He knew that even with the temple and even with the sacrifices and even with the moral code and even with all the things that he provided, Israel and all of humanity needed to have a new spirit and they needed to have a new cleansing. And that's why very quickly, starting as early as the book of Deuteronomy, but especially in Jeremiah chapter 31 and Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel 36, God is talking about how he is the one that's going to provide that new spirit and that new cleansing. Let me read you just one part out of Ezekiel 36, verse 25. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God goes, I know you can't do it. So I am going to provide a way for you to do it. And it's going to happen all from me. And that's where verse 10 comes in. Let's read verse 10. It says, and I will pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they have looked on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a first, over a firstborn. And then it's going to go on and it's going to give some paraphrase, if I can just kind of quickly walk through the rest, where it's going to talk about the mourning being as great as a city up in the Jezreel Valley in the north of Israel. And then it's going to say that all people in the land are going to mourn and all families are going to mourn from the house of David and his son, the house of Nathan, and from the priestly house, the house of Levi, and from the Shimeites, which is not related to the guy from Captain Hook, and all of their wives, everybody is going to respond And this text is beautiful because it's starting with this aspect that who is the one that's pouring out this grace and this favor, the pleas for mercy? It's the Lord. And he's pouring it out like water. I like what one commentator says. He says, it's one thing to have grace or favor. It's another to capitalize on that favor by seeking it. Because see, God doesn't just pour out grace. That's something he clearly does. But he pours out the way for you to ask for that grace to change you. And God says, I'm pouring that out. But we have to look at what it's talking about because it keeps making reference to the house of David in Jerusalem. And it's actually connecting all this with the battle we read in the first eight verses, nine verses, and the battle that's talked about in chapter 11 and a little bit in chapter 10. And so it's saying that within this battle, someone is pierced. Someone is literally in the Hebrew stabbed. And in this piercing, It comes not from the people attacking Jerusalem. It comes at the hand of the people in Jerusalem. So at some point, the people turn and they kill their own king, their own messianic person from the house of Judah. And so the the themes that we've read throughout Zechariah, they talk about this coming Davidic king, and it's trying to direct our eyes towards that. And this piercing is going to leave an effect So, in chapter three of Zechariah, it tells us that the iniquity of the land would be removed in a single day with the one that comes as a shoot of David. So, it's directing us towards this. But if you look into the text, it's got this complex sentence that makes you realize that something dynamic is happening. Because it says, when they look on me, or most translations will actually say, to me, the Lord, their object, Whom they've pierced. So it's saying they've pierced the Lord, but it says they're going to mourn for him. But it's not him connected to the Lord, it's this other him because it's talking about the Davidic king. And so what it's trying to paint for you, and it's not very explicit, is it's saying that they have pierced. This Davidic king that's gonna come, and in that way they've pierced Yahweh because the king is his agent and they are deserving of judgment. But rather than judgment, God pours out grace and restores relationship and gives them the ability to grieve and call upon God's work, and it's showing that God has a plan. Now, this is a very important verse because in the book of John, chapter 19, verse 37, when Jesus is up on the cross representing the Messiah, because he is the Messiah. John quotes Zechariah twelve ten, and they will look upon the one they have pierced. And he makes the connection because the Spirit's identifying it to him. And then the text tells you that everyone mourns. We already kind of talked about it, but everyone's wailing and grieving with this depth of anguish and sorrow, like mourning for an only child, or I like what the Greek says, because they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, like a beloved child, which it's interesting that God would call Jesus his beloved son. And what's happening is this mourning is a response. It's a sincere, authentic response to the sacrifice happening with the Messiah. And this new poured out spirit of repentance and this desire for forgiveness, it drives the people in this deep grief to respond deeply to God's grace and his sacrifice to the pierced one. And it's a move of God's spirit allowing us to turn. When's the last time that you responded to the sacrifice of Jesus with great mourning? Was it only when you came to Christ? Does it happen every time you realize the gravity of what it means that Jesus died on the cross? I remember my junior year in high school, I was at Hume Lake Christian Camp, went to a winter camp, loved it, sitting there, speakers speaking, ends up kind of throwing to a video, and in that video, they showed um, the torture and the crucifixion of Jesus. This was before Passion of the Christ. And I remember watching it, and it just hit me. What was happening on the cross, and what that meant for me. And I could feel the response happening. The Spirit was working that morning. And so I did what any high school boy would do. I got up and I ran out of the chapel. And I ran out to the side of the Ponderosa Chapel and I fell in the snow and I wept. One of my good friends came out, my counselor came out and they prayed with me and that was when I watched this response happen because salvation, forgiveness and restoration are connected with the one who is pierced. Things are made right between you and between God, between me and between God because of this restoration. And then it tells you the effect of it. Look at 13, verse 1. This is where chapters and verses mess things up in the Bible because this is actually meant to be in chapter 12, but somebody didn't like it there. So they put their own chapter somewhere else. It says, on that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. So whereas before, it says, on that day, there was mourning, now it's saying, on this day, there's cleansing that the effect of what the pierced one does means cleansing for all people. And it starts with a cleansing of the kingdom, and then it's a cleansing of the figurehead for Israel at that time, which was Jerusalem. So it's a cleansing of the kingdom, a cleansing of Jerusalem, and later you're going to see it's a cleansing for all people. And the church is the recipients of the benefits promised by that cleansing, the enablement by the Spirit to obey, to have an intimate relationship with the Lord, to have a saving knowledge of oneself and the forgiveness of sins that comes from the pierced one. Which is why when Jesus decides to sit down at a well with a Samaritan woman and starts talking to her about water, he ends up saying in John chapter 4, verses 13 to 14, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Where Jesus is sitting there with this woman and he's going, Zechariah 13. They didn't have chapters. He's like, Zechariah, the promise is there. Restoration happens and it happens now when you believe and you encounter the one who will be pierced, who we know has been pierced. And it tells you the effect if you look at verses 2 to 5 I'm not gonna, or 2 to 6. I'm not going to read them all. But also, this means that they're going to cut off the names of all idols from the land. The idols will be remembered no more. There'll be no more prophets or, un, or spirits of uncleanliness. It's no more counterfeit prophets. And anyone who even was a counterfeit prophet won't even admit it. Even with their clothes or the markings they have, they'll find a way to make stories so that no one knows that they were a prophet. But look at what happens in verse 7 to 9. The whole vision shifts, and it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third left alive and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. That God walks them back through and he's taking them back again to chapter 11 and this motif of battle and this motif of stuff happening and whereas God is saying before, the people in Jerusalem pierced my coming one. God says, no, actually, I'm involved in this. I'm the one that says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. God's saying, this is part of my plan. And when he says that he's the one who stands next to me, it literally means the one who dwells by my side as my equal. Where God is saying, this shepherd king from the the house of David is me. This is equal to me. And he's calling this out and he's saying this distinct leader that Israel pierces, I'm allowing him to be struck because that's going to be the way that you are refined. That's going to be the way that you're going to be able to enter into the power of the kingdom, but it's going to be trial, right? And that's why he gives the list of the two thirds and the third, that you're going to be refined like silver and gold. It's interesting that in verse seven, it says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. My hand is turned against the little ones because that verse will get picked up in the book of Matthew chapter 26 and Mark 14 when Jesus is in the garden and they arrest him and then all the disciples spread. They quote this line out of Zechariah. And the reason why is because at that point, the 12 disciples represented the 12 tribes of Israel and it's trying to show like what has happened before and what would happen for Israel, the tribes would be scattered. The 12 are representing that scattering because you have to remember, there were all 12 in the garden, even though one of them was there for the wrong reason. And so they're sitting there, and they're, and they're reflecting on this, and God's saying, I'm taking you through this purification, through this cleansing, so, verse 9, you can be in relationship with me, where you can communicate and call upon my name, and guess what, I will answer you. And I will say to you, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. God's saying, you can have your true identity finally in relationship with me, full restoration. And this is where we need to stop and take a moment to breathe. I was watching a show recently that was talking, uh, kind of joking about driveway moments. Um, A lot of us don't realize we have driveway moments all the time, right? Where you're listening to a podcast or you're listening to a book on CD or you're listening to your favorite song and you pull into your driveway, and it's not done. And so you sit in your car, right, with your car still running, because the AC is on, and you're listening to this, and you're not getting out, because you want to hear how it ends. And your spouse or your kids are inside, and they're like, what are they doing? And you could be, you're also sitting in the car, and you're on a phone call, and you want the phone call to end, (laughs) and you're in in the driveway for that moment. What we get now in chapter 14 is a driveway moment, where you're sitting and you're going, I want to hear how the story ends. I want to hear the fullness that's going to come, because this final chapter is the final approaching of God's intervention and God's purpose, where his people, all people, worship him as king in a renewed creation, where the kingdom is fully established. And so look at chapter 14. I'm just going to read verse 1 as a start. It says, behold, a day is coming for the Lord. Now, we've already talked about how it says on that day, on that day, on that day. This time, it doesn't say on that day. It says, behold, a day is coming. But that day is specific because whereas whereas everything else has looked like humanity's day, this is the Lord's day. Because it's the day when all things about his kingdom come together in fullness. And what's hard about what we're about to read in chapter 14 is it's not chronological, which has this jarring effect on the reader, because he's going to talk about stuff that's future, and then he's going to zoom back towards battle, and then he's going to talk about future, and then he's going to talk more detail about the battle, and then he's going to finish with the future again. But again, it's going to show you that God is coming in one last time as the divine warrior affecting the cosmos and bringing in his rule. And the New Testament takes the language and the images and the themes of this chapter, and it says, this is telling you about the first coming of the Messiah, the King of David, and the second coming of the Messiah, Christmas one and Christmas two. Do you realize that? We get to celebrate two comings, and the second one is greater than the first. And it talks about this, and it recalls these images and the New Testament is telling us this is now and it's yet not yet. And so the day is still to come when he returns for that second time to bring in the kingdom in completion. Now let me read it, read it just real fast here. Verses 1 to 7, behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out in exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, and I love this because we teach this on the Mount of Olives in Israel. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half moves northward and the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And he talks about them fleeing like in a past time in their history. And then he says, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And on that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, there shall be night light. And so it starts by recalling past images, but looking forward to future images of this attack, sacking of Jerusalem. And it talks about the spoil being taken and the people gathering around them and intense, horrific things. And again, God is showing there's going to still be a final cleansing to happen over all idolatry and sin. But then, verse 3, he's going to go out and fight as our deliverer, and he will intervene in mercy and he sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the thing you have to realize is that the Mount of Olives is on the east, but it's actually a mountain that's taller than Mount Moriah that Jerusalem sits on. And so you actually look down from the Mount of Olives on the temple. And so when he stands his feet on there, he's on the east because anytime in the tabernacle or the temple that you entered it, or if you read in the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, you entered from the east. So he's gonna enter, to fulfill things in the fullest way. And he comes, and what I think is interesting in the, is that in Jesus' life, in Matthew 24, he gives one of his greatest sermons on the final days on the Mount of Olives. He talks about these things himself from his mouth. And in the book of Acts, when Jesus ascends after being resurrected, he's there on the Mount of Olives. And he starts uh, rising up into the the heavens. And it says, while the disciples are gazing, two men stood by them in white robes robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And I love it because I feel like those two angels are like, Zachariah! <laughs> like, like they're trying to remind the guys, this is already part of the promise that he is going to return. And when he returns, it's going to have this earth shaking significant. The mountain is split in two, which is interesting because in that term in the Hebrew, it's the same term they use for splitting the waters of the Red Sea in the book of Exodus. That God's going, I'm going to move those mountains and it's going to be a way for you to get out in the same way I brought you out of Egypt and freed you. And you're gonna flee and escape and salvation. And then verse five, the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Where now it's saying, now is the coming in victory with this angel army or this army of the saints. Jesus actually talks about it in Matthew 25 in that Olivet Discourse. But even greater, Revelation 19 tells us that we see heaven open and a rider on a white horse that comes and it gives you all of his names and then it tells you, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And that's one of those epic moments and those epic pictures of the final coming of Jesus. And then it tells you in verse 6: no light, no cold, no frost, which there's some of you that are like the snowboarders and the like skiers, and you're like, no! Well, actually, the the term no light or no cold and no frost is actually a mistranslation. A lot of your Bibles will have a little note that will say they're unsure of what it is in the Hebrew. They've actually figured it out now, that it has to mean with the heavenly bodies are thickened, or the term is congealed. And so what it's saying is it's saying there's no light because all the luminaries, the sun, the moon, and the stars are blocked. And that's what leads into the next line, that there's neither day nor night, and at the evening time there shall be light, and it will be a unique day like no other And this is where I wanna read verses eight and nine because they're kind of the, the main piece of all of this. It says in verse eight, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the Eastern Sea and half of them to the Western Sea. It shall continue in the summer as in winter. And it's giving you a literal and symbolic picture that is so based on Genesis 2 and Ezekiel 47. But it's saying that this half of it's gonna run towards the Eastern Sea, which is the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, and half of it's gonna run towards the Mediterranean. And it's not gonna only run in the winter when it rains, it's gonna run all the time because the source is from Jerusalem and it's from the temple. And what happens is in Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel gets a chance to have this pretty powerful vision where he's with an angel and they see this water start trickling from the Holy of Holies in the temple and it starts running east and they follow it and they're measuring and as they measure, the water's ankle deep and then it's knee deep and then it's waist deep and then they're swimming in it and they take it all the way to the east into En Gedi, which we get a chance to teach on this in En Gedi. And as it gets to En Gedi, it goes into the Dead Sea and now the sea that is dead that has so much salt in it that people float. And if you go to Israel, you get a chance to do that. It has no living creatures in it. Now that water hits the Dead Sea, and it becomes alive. And this is a symbolic picture of what God does in people. And it tells you that trees are growing up around it, and their leaves are for the healing of the nations, and it grows a crop monthly, and there's living creatures everywhere. And now what normally is not there in the Rift Valley by the Dead Sea is there, life. And God's going, this is what I'm going to do. And this probably sounds familiar to you, because if you read Revelation 22, the same river is in the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's why we know this is pointing forward, but it's giving you a picture of what God starts in us. But this is what I like that's even better, is that in John chapter 7, Jesus makes a trip to Jerusalem for the feast of Sukkot which is the Feast of Tabernacles, the celebration of Israel coming out of the Exodus and living in the wilderness and God sustaining them. And it's a time when they celebrate. And in the time of Jesus, what the priests would do is they would read different texts during these festivals and they would read Ezekiel 48 and 47. And they would take jars of water up by the Holy of Holies and they would pour them out to kind of give a visual picture while they praised of the water flowing out awaiting the day that that would come. And what I love is in John chapter seven, verse uh, 37, Jesus shows up on that last day and he stands up and says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That Jesus is trying to say, it's when you come into relationship with me, the one who will be pierced, the one who will give his life and cleanse you and forgive you. Then this living water springs up in you, just like Zechariah 13, you're seeing it here. New life, recreation. And then we hit verse nine, my favorite verse in all of the scriptures. We made this the theme verse for the high school ministry and it still is. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one. And his name won. Where God is in his proper place as king. I don't know if you remember, but when the angels came to Mary and Joseph, they said that the Lord will give the one, that they're gonna ha- that one that's going to be born the throne of his father David, and he will reign forever, and his kingdom will never end. And in Revelation eleven five, 5, it tells you that all the multitudes are going to fall down and say... The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is fulfilled in Jesus. And yet it's based and working off of one of the most key texts of the Old Testament, because for the Jewish people, they all would memorize one line, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. And for those of you guys that went to Israel with us or you've ever been in a class with me, you know we force you to memorize it. And so I'm going to say it right now, and if you know it, say it with me. You say, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. You're going to spit a little bit. (laughs) Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then the next line, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with everything else. And guess what? When people came and asked Jesus what the greatest command was, He quotes the Shema. This is a key text because it shows that God is alone, worthy of our allegiance. He wants us to understand who he is. He wants to be the sole object of our faith, of our dependence, and thus our obedience. He wants you to realize that he is the king and you can be part of his kingdom. And the question for all of us at all times is that. Is he my king, and do I wanna be a part of his kingdom? At every moment, in every place, at every time. Now the text goes on, we don't have time to unpack all of it, but the effects that happen in Israel are powerful because it's going to be turned into a plain in verse 10, and Jerusalem stands up as a beacon to all, and it tells you that it will again be inhabited, for there will never be a decree of utter destruction, and they will dwell in security. And then it's going to zoom back, and it's going to talk about how all the enemies are going to be destroyed in verses 12 to 14, and it's going to talk about how people that survive are going to come up and still worship the Lord at the Feast of Sukkot, but let me draw your eyes to verse 20. It says, and on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice might come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor or a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And I bet when you came here today, you did not think that you would hear in a message that in the final day, your car is holy. And your Tupperware is holy. And your Starbucks mug is holy. Because it's not. Only a Pete's coffee cup is holy. (laughs) No, here's the thing. Is it's trying to show you that, finally, in the final kingdom, all things are made holy so that everything is worship to the Lord. And it's drawing back a picture to the high priest because the high priest for Israel was the one person that was consecrated and specially cleansed and set apart with access to the presence of the Lord. Actually, the, the, the high priest himself would have this turban and he would have this gold plate on the front of the turban, turban. And in Hebrew, it would say, Holy to the Lord. And so now it's saying, Well, now you can see that on a horse and a pot. And everything is holy to the Lord. And the reason why this is important is because the high priest was the one that had access to the presence of God. And the New Testament writers saw this and they said, this has happened in Jesus. And so you go to the book of Hebrews and 17 different times it tells you that Jesus is the high priest. That he is holy to the Lord and he gives you and he gives me access to the presence. And that's the way we are able to live in the kingdom.